Hello, and welcome to our latest Human Givens Ask the Expert podcast. I'm Julia Wellstead, and I'm part of the Human Givens team. Today, we'll be asking Emily Gajewski, why do adults and children self-harm? We're delighted to have Emily as our expert today. She's worked for over 24 years as a therapist, both within the NHS and privately, helping people to move on from even the most severe emotional difficulties. And she has a wealth of experience at helping people, especially moving on from self-harm. Most recently, Emily was employed as a lead occupational therapist in Sussex, where she developed a number of mental health services, working with a wide range of emotional difficulties, including psychosis and self-harm. Now, Emily is also a registered Human Givens practitioner, and she teaches our Overcoming Self-Harm one-day workshop for Human Givens College, and you can find the details of that on the Human Givens College website. Hi, Emily. Hi. Thank you so much for coming to talk with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Fantastic. Well, we've, listen, Emily, we've got lots of questions. Uh, it's a very important topic. But first, can you tell us more about your work and when you first started to help people with self-harm and perhaps a bit about how the human givens approach helps? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, my background's in occupational therapy in the NHS. And um, I remember very distinctly how I first came across human givens when I, I went on an anxiety management course taught by an occupational therapist. And during the course, she talked about the rewind and um, I just thought, wow, <laughs> that sounds amazing. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I looked up Human Givens and my first workshop was with Joe, and it was called Managing Anxiety Without Drugs and it was in a packed auditorium in London. And, um, you know, so many people say about the Human Givens, it's like a light going on, really. Yes. And um, I'd always loved, I've always loved my work, I've been extremely lucky and I love being an OT, but once I... Once I had the human givens training, I felt like my effectiveness soared really. Um, and so, yeah, I've done all kinds of, I've done all kinds of stuff, but in the NHS, I did a lot of um, working with kind of severe and enduring mental health problems. And yes. the, the work that kind of inspired me to really focus on self-harm and develop the workshop was my work with, Sussex Partnership Trust um, working in a women's mental health service there where we work with women who there was a lot of despondency around you know these were women that had been in the system uh, the mental health system and the uh, the prison system for for a long time and yes. a lot of sort of helplessness around the whole situation and I was really you know blessed to be able to bring in the human givens approach to that service and mm. work to create environments that really met emotional needs you know so, so these women came from services where they were really stripped of opportunities to meet their emotional needs you know some of them were in sort of isolation situations where really your needs couldn't be less met you know um yes but, absolutely yeah. yeah so having that having that time to sort of you know, rehumanize them really. Yes, and and get them to understand the whole the concept of needs. Yeah, presumably. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and we 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 sort of we shaped 
their care plans, we called them recovery plans, but we shaped them around the emotional needs. So when we had kind of care, you know, team meetings with the, with the clients there, we, we literally went through their emotional needs and said, okay, how are you doing with this? What opportunities do you have to get your, you know, your need for competency and achievement met or connection with the community? And it was just incredible, really, to see people blossoming, you know, yes. and, and families would often say, you know, it's like they're coming back alive. They're, they're, um, they're seeing the, the person they used to be again. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yes. yeah. So, yeah, so then... I worked there for about five years and then I went completely freelance when I had my children. So um, now it's more in private practice that I see people with a whole range of difficulties, but I do tend to see maybe slightly more than other therapists of people that self-harm just because, you know, that's an area of interest for me. Yes. And of course you teach the course on self-harm for us as well. So. Yes, I do. Yeah. Now onto the questions that we've ha- had uh, submitted for you today. and really starting with a very core one why why do we self-harm yeah yeah well it's lovely Julia to hear you saying we (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know we all self-harm and and this is something you know a real sort of thrust in the in the course that I talk about and and a lot to parents as well of of children that are self-harming that actually we are all on this self-harming continuum so, you know, if you imagine a continuum at the, at the beginning of the continuum when life's going okay, there's no major stresses in life, you know, we're, we're kind of attempting to self-care usually at that point. So we're yes. trying to eat reasonably well and exercise and not overdo drinking or drugs, or, you know. Yeah. And then as stress creeps in, I believe we all move up this continuum where we become maybe a bit more reckless with ourselves. We, you know, tend to eat a bit more rubbish or have a few more glasses of wine in the evening or, you know, dabble in drugs or do something that we know is causing us harm. Yes. Or even chew our fingernails, I think, because that's sort of on that scale as well. Yes. Or, you know, get our house in a real mess and just have no motivation to clear it up. Um, Mm. Just, you know, be less self-caring until the point maybe where we're really overwhelmed with emotion of one sort or another. And, we're actually finding ways of harming ourselves as a way of relieving emotional distress. So what we know, for instance, about cutting, which is the most common form of self-harm, yeah. is that when we, when we injure ourselves in some way, so actually it's cutting, but it's also things like head banging or often, well, it's a generalization, but more commonly with, with boys and men getting into a fight, you know, provoking a fight or hitting a wall, you know, causing yes. some kind of injury, which may not be labelled maybe as self-harm, but, but has absolutely the same mechanism in it. When we, when we cause our body injury in that way, endogenous opiates are released into the bloodstream. And the, the reason for that is for our survival. You know, so if we were yes. an animal in the wild who'd been attacked, we have this release of, of hormones into the system to be able to, to move away and survive and, and be safe. Absolutely, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that's the same system yes. that, that's, that's working if you, because I was thinking about this before the podcast, before with this recording actually, and thinking, you know, if I cut myself when I'm chopping vegetables or something, mm. um, there's that initial panic and then the kind of 
sit down, tend to it, pay attention to it, yes. bandage it, whatever. And then there's really quite a nice calm feeling. Yes, exactly that, exactly that. And, you know, people that self-harm regularly cite that for the reason that, you know, some people call it kind of zoning out mm. or, you know, floating above myself, that sense of, you know, there's a sense of almost dissociation with right. more severe yes. injury. Yes. yes. So, it, so, so then the addiction that that develops as an addiction almost does it? Would you would you call it that? It can. It can. I mean, in the same way that with any other addiction, if your environment is healthy, if you're getting your needs met, it's unlikely to develop an, into an addiction. But if your environment is unhealthy, you're not getting your needs met. It has great potential to become addictive. Um, yeah. And you know, the whole expectation fulfillment theory kicks in then when you know when we're imagining self-harming we get the shot of dopamine and that you know this is really really important in terms of how uh self-harm is is treated and approached uh there's there's one that i think you have actually answered here is there a difference between self-harm and self-injury so the difference is that when uh, self, when we refer to self-injury, generally in literature, it's um, behaviours where we're purposefully injuring ourselves. But um, you know, the the literature can be quite confusing, really, and those terms can be used interchangeably. But you know, yeah. self-harming really is any behaviour that causes you harm, but you feel compelled to do in in moments of distress. Mm. Self-injury is within that, but it's maybe a little bit more specific in terms of actually injuring oneself, you know, causing injury. I see. Yes. So self-harm could include gambling, whereas self-injury wouldn't really include that because that's more of a bodily thing. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it it is so incredibly helpful to think of self-harm on that continuum because then, then we can identify with that you know, the, the process that's going on for somebody who's self-injuring. Because yes. You know, uh, other therapists I supervise will say, I just can't, I just can't get my head round why you would want to injure yourself. You know, and actually when yeah. you think of it in the same way as, well, why do you, when you've eaten one massive piece of chocolate cake, feel desperate to have another one, even though you feel sick? Or, you know, why are you drinking a third glass of wine, even when you know you've got to get up at six o'clock in the morning? Yeah. It's that same desperate need to to soothe yourself. Yes, and and even I think uh, um, exercise is included in this, isn't it? Yeah. People who sort of obsessively yeah run that extra ten miles or whatever. Yeah, even though you've you know sprained your knee or you know yeah 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 yeah. Mm. And and what sort of age would you say self harming behaviours can start, or is there no lower age limit? Well, I mean, hospital admissions, I mean, again, the statistics are, are tricky because they, they come in, they come from, from different methods of recording. But if we look at hospital admissions, so that's A&E admissions, when people have got to that point when they're injured enough to go to A&E. Yes. Um, the earliest recorded admissions are around age five, which is pretty wow, really. Yeah. Um, and that, that age group, you know, it's uncommon, but sort of, you know, seven, eight, it's becoming more common. 
Yeah, and the so, average, the so sort of the age of reason, the, the sort of yes. seven-year-old starting to yes. think more, yes. Exactly, becoming more aware of, you know, comparisons and am I good enough and those types of um, concepts. Mm. Um, and possibly at that age, do you think copying someone who's older than them in their... Possibly, possibly, yeah. I mean, that isn't particularly written about, but it, it's a definite possibility. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the sort of most common ages is, is sort of 11 to 15. That's where we've seen a sharp increase. Um, right, yes. And, that, and uh, it's, this is very much in the news at the moment, isn't it? On the internet and social media, mm. we can find images and information about self-harm. Mm. And of course, some of that's very helpful, but as is in the news at the moment, others seem to be almost glorifying self-harm. Mm. and maybe calling it a good coping mechanism um mm. so someone especially in that 11 to 15 year old age group who's suffering from emotional distress might see that as a positive option so wh what are your thoughts about that and how we can maybe teach our children uh that that it's not a good coping mechanism i think i mean as parents, you know, we, the, there's lots of things that we'd want to talk to our children about as not desirable coping mechanisms like alcohol and drugs and being promiscuous and gambling. And I think it, it, it comes into that same bracket now, because as you say, it is much, you know, I, I started doing the workshop 10 years ago and it was still a pretty taboo subject at that time. You know, a lot of yeah. people didn't even know what it was. Certainly young people wouldn't have known what it was. So yes. in some ways that exposure is very positive because the people who are self-harming feel less isolated and less stigmatized. But of course, you know, as you've said, it's a double-edged sword because it could be exposing young children to something they knew nothing about. Um, so, I, you know, the literature does suggest and the studies that have been done with young people um, suggest that the most helpful thing to do is be very open and honest and straight talking about self-harm. So, you know, there used to be this idea that if you, if you mention self-harm or you mention suicide, you almost give somebody an idea. Yes. yes. You know, like, oh, yeah, I've never thought that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Actually, yeah. the, 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 the opposite is true, that if we're just quite upfront about it um, and we just say, you know, this is, this is something that some people do, and and presumably explain how it's working yes exactly you know I, I mean my daughter is is eight and we've already started talking about alcohol and drugs because she she sees that you know and we've you know it's really the kind of um the boss and the secretary model of addiction in yeah. in, in child-friendly language so we talk about you know the it's they're like bullies drugs and alcohol and they they bully you into thinking they're going to really have fun with you, but actually it's all a trick. Yeah. You know? And I think you, you, you could talk in terms um, that those sort of terms about self-harm, that it can seem that might be something that could help you, but actually it's tricking you. And, yes. And ask yeah. them, you know, what do you think could be the, the not so good side effects of that? What, what might not be good? You know, yes. get start thinking about it. Mm. How fascinating. Of course, the boss secretary thing is much more um, explained in our addiction book and one day course. But of course, there's, uh, as with so many addictions that, as well, there, um, in a sense, it is a coping mechanism. It's not a good one. 
but it is one. So how, how, how would you suggest helping as people to stop seeing it as a coping mechanism? Mm. Well, I think the first thing to say is that, you know, we never want to be going in with the expectation of, of, of stopping somebody. So, you know, traditionally in, in statutory services, this is a real drive you know when someone comes in for instance to a mental health unit it's you know how how are we going to prevent this person from self-harming but as I sort of started to say earlier that it's extremely important that we don't just try and stop somebody self-harming when they don't have another coping mechanism yes you know if you think about that the 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 influence of dopamine in behaviors if if somebody is relying on self-harm as their coping strategy and they're in a situation where they're being prevented from using that coping strategy, you know, the, the, the dopamine, dopamine laced memories are, you know, coming at them full force. And this can lead to situations where actually someone will self-harm far more destructively and, and more dangerously than they would have done if they'd had a clean, blade or you know whatever it is that they would have used right so, i see the danger there yes so they're yeah. they've they've tried not to do it they've been told not to do it so yeah. they haven't got their normal routine yes exactly exactly <sighs> and in the workshop i show um i show a video of two of the women that i work with in in the women's mental health service and one of the women in that video talks about a time that she was in a medium secure unit where she was prevented supposedly prevented from self-harming and she actually managed to get somebody to bring in a lighter and she set herself on fire (gasps) Um, thank goodness she survived but you know she says very clearly in the video and you know obviously knew her and we talked about it she said there would be no way on earth she would have done that if she was able to just cut herself with a clean blade superficially but she's been left you know in this kind of isolated situation her emotional needs were, you know, sorely unmet. Mm. And all she had really was her, her dopamine lace memory spurring her on to think, well, I've got to do it. You got know. to do something, anything to something. get that. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. So in effect, if, if the onus is on stopping the self-harming at all costs, mm. that could affect, um, make their mental health situation deteriorate further. Definitely. It, yeah. it, it, it does, without a doubt. And in the in the service that I worked in it, at the time, it was quite um, it was quite controversial and quite pioneering. And that we had a med- we had the only medium secure unit where women were allowed to have objects there that they could self harm with. Mm. Um, and 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 usually, what happens in that kind of unit is initially the self harm rates go up because they're testing testing it all out. Really. Yes, yes. Really, you're really going to let me do this. Yeah. Um, but actually then rates drop right off and, you know, women got to a point where, you know, they hadn't been in years and years and years because they've been in settings where they've been prevented. But of course, alongside that work, you're working with the individual to develop positive ways of coping. So you're exactly. not, you know, yeah. it's, uh, you know, the bad press around harm minimization is, you know, oh, you're just kind of letting them get on with it. But of course, that's not the case. It's, it's very much in a very nurturing environment where emotional needs are at the core of the work and um, opportunities to meet those needs and build themselves back up. So that actually, 
you know, once the, once the needs are so much more um, met in balance, the self-harming just melts away because there's no, there's no need for it. No need for it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, a, a bit like, I suppose the, um, that study where uh, soldiers coming back from Vietnam yeah um, sort of miraculously stopped taking drugs but of course it was because they were getting their needs met again in their yeah. family and yes. and local environment yes yes, yeah. yes exactly. um, so moving on slightly what, what this is another question for you emily what should i do if i think someone is self-harming i guess it depends who it is and who you are um you know what your what your role is um the key, the key things to do are to be very open and very non-judgmental in your approach. So, um, you know, to make sure that that person knows that you are available and that you care and that you want to listen. So in the, in the workshop, again, one of the exercises we do is, you know, if somebody is, is, is wanting to talk to you about their self-harm, that we just listen, you know, because it, it, because it is obviously such an emotive subject, particularly for parents, you know, of children that are self-harming, you know, being a parent myself, the thought of it is just, un- well, it's unthinkable, isn't it? Um, yes, absolutely. Harming themselves. Yeah. So I think a lot of it actually is, is making sure that the parents feel supported, that they, you know, so I often, as a therapist, see parents to support them so that they can be really available for their children and really listen to what to why they're at that point yes so that and of course again understand the par- the parents also need to understand the 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 process the dopamine yes the, the, what's yes. going on physically exactly. yes yeah so you need to explain that if you're working with a parent um and so that the, you know so that you're enabling the parent really to tune in to the to the to the reasons why someone has got to that point yeah so it's so really the emphasis is on not on the self-harm and certainly not on stopping it but much more on what can i do to support you how can i how can i help you yes um, and listening i'm guessing here that uh, especially with a young teenager they might not really know or be able to put into words why they're doing it yeah yeah absolutely and I think, you know, just spending time, um, I know that's difficult when we're all so busy, but mm. trying to just ring fence time for you and your teenager to just be, you know, whether that's going for a walk or going for a swim or going to the cinema, it may, you know, as exactly as you say, it may not be, in, it may not be words, but it may yeah. be about you just being alongside them. Yes. And being available. You know, in, in, in the women's service, we, it was a real struggle recruiting support workers that would be happy to just sit in a lounge and wait for somebody to come and talk to them. Yes. But actually, it's what we repeatedly got told from our clients that that was what was so lovely, that people were just available. They weren't rushing around mm. doing other stuff. They were just there and then really listened you know, without making suggestions, without telling you to stop, without telling you you're wrong, without trying to bargain with you or say, you know, if you do this again, this is, you know, all of that stuff is so unhelpful yeah, to just yeah. be really present and listen and, listen and have time. And this chimes so well with, I don't know if you have listened to the podcast I did recently with Chris Dias. I did. And, and his, that quote from a 
a child, I think. Um, mm. I wish I'd had someone to talk to while I was waiting for someone to talk to. Yeah, yeah exactly. And exactly. I think that's so telling, isn't it? That it really is, yeah. Everyone gets put on a list and you have to wait. Yeah. Yes, mm. exactly. And actually, isn't, you know, I think from my experience of, of working in that service, it was often just, it was it was the support workers that they that people made real friendships with yeah you know, professional friendships of course but you know they could be as you say on a waiting list to see a, a so-called expert psychologist or psychiatrist but actually it was the the relationship that they formed with with someone there that they could trust that was the most healing yes you know in 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 the literature around self-harm we, it, we talk about um, relational security rather than physical security mm. so it's so it's moving away from this notion of the only way you can help someone move on from self-harm is be in an environment where there's nothing they can self-harm with so the so the environment is somehow supposed to be secure which of course it never is never can be never yes. can be but actually the real security as we know which is one of our you know very uh important emotional needs comes from trusting relationships yeah. and that's actually where we can move on once we feel heard and understood and validated yes mm. absolutely yes now and emily do you think self-harm is on the rise or is it just that as you mentioned earlier that it's sort of more spoken about now yeah it's who knows really it's my <laughs> answer yeah i mean the statistics show it's massively on the rise you know, there was a big NHS study um, that studied rates of um, GPs reporting people coming with self-harm. So they studied from 2007 to 2014. And it showed that in that time, um, the, the rates of boys reporting self-harm doubled and the rates of girls trebled. Wow. I know. But, mm. you know, it's so whether they were all self-harming before that time but they didn't have the courage to go and seek help or they felt too stigmatized and now they feel less stigmatized and yeah you know what I mean it's very it's very difficult to really know but uh, what we definitely know is that it's it's being much more widely reported um yes. which, which, which is all we can go on really isn't it yeah I, I think so I think so and I, and I definitely think you know for young people they are much much less isolated with the problem which is which is encouraging but yes of course yeah so the sort of next step is to get the news out which you're doing uh, so ably about the why and what can be done about it uh, in terms of getting needs met and everything yes exactly exactly that's the challenge i think yes (laughs) now it's something that actually um i came across a wee bit uh but I'd love to know your response to this. Why, for those who have cut themselves, mm. how do you then help them? You know, you've, 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 you've probably hopefully gone through the needs and resources and how to get uh, their needs met more effectively. Mm. But then, of course, they're going to have scars, uh, physical mm. scars. How do you help them with those physical scars that they're mm. left with? Yeah. Um, I think... Things like self-massage can be very helpful. Um, Manuka honey is known to be very healing. Mm-hmm. So some people I've worked with, I've you know, encouraged them to massage in Manuka honey, which helps with the healing. Um, 
another oil so that you're you know there's a, the, the the kind of um metaphor of almost you know that that self-caring and almost taking yeah. taking care of that vulnerable part of you yes you know, kind of there's you know there's so much useful stuff in self-compassion you know and the mm. thing on that of kind of really nurturing yourself and really kind of you know nurturing that vulnerable part of you that did that yes yes you know and i suppose almost i i know i'm sure you go uh, uh, into more detail in your workshop with this mm-hmm. but i'm just also thinking it's um a bit like any old injury it, it it's something that you take a bit more care of and you actually almost store the memory of that bad time mm-hmm. in there mm-hmm. absolutely absolutely and i think you know as human giving therapists there's lots of metaphors that we can use about that. There's a lovely one um, that, that, you know, a woman that lived in a beautiful house with this amazing window over her stairs. And, you know, it was, it was beautifully done with ironwork. And, and then one night there was a terrible storm and it crashed into a million pieces. And she spent weeks putting it all back, you know, in a mosaic and it created the most beautiful light coming through her, her window into her house, ah. you know, those That's lovely. Kind of metaphors can be really helpful, yes. I think. Yes. Um, and also tattooing. Um, some clients I've worked with have, have tattooed over, star, over stars. Ah. Uh, really positive messages or, um, or just images that they like. There's actually, there was a guy in Dublin who was doing this for free. I'm not sure if he's still doing it. Um, oh, that'd be amazing. Yes. Name, but I, could, I could post a link. Yes, um, yes, that would be great. That's yeah. such a good idea, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah that I, I think some people have found that very helpful. Mm, mm, I like that. Yeah. Um, again, so moving slightly into a different realm, but mm. it's all on the same theme. Mm. Is there a link between self-harm and suicide? Mm. I'm really glad we've got that question because, um, again, you know, in, in, in my past in the NHS, there was, there was a lot of, assumptions made when people were severely self-harming that it was that it was a suicide attempt without actually asking the person that did it um and actually what what the research shows is that they are very very separate acts most of the time so so there is a link in that if you have severely self-harmed so you've got to the point where you've been admitted into a and e you're about a hundred times more likely to kill yourself in the following year um wow that's yeah amazing. yeah so and that really that's yeah. about you know you getting to the point where you're you are really being self-destructive that this, the step yeah. onto suicide is obviously a lot smaller than somebody mm. who hasn't committed that kind of self-injury mm. but uh but having said that you know it, the other the other uh, you know a really sort of um a, a point i drive home in the in the workshop is that we really have to be, again, really honest and straight talking about self-injury. And if someone has self-injured quite significantly, to ask the question, you know, obviously it's after you've built rapport, but to say, you know, was this, was this actually an attempt to kill yourself or, or was it self-harm? Was it, was it you getting through the moment? Yes, because of course it could be accidental. You know, yeah. given that the process of self-harming is to make yourself feel better. Yeah. Exactly. It's a a very different act, as you say. Yes. Yes. It's a very different intention behind the act. And obviously you would, you, 
you know, if someone was actively suicidal, you would want to approach that very differently to someone who's trying to stay alive. Yeah. Um, and again, in statutory services, I think that that confusion can be really unhelpful because that can lead to somebody being on a kind of suicide watch situation where they may yes. be in a room with nothing in it and being constantly observed, which actually, if you're trying to stay alive and move on, is so inappropriate. Yeah. Um, yes, completely the wrong end of the stick. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it is, it, it, it's a question that I know historically from supervising students, it, it, it's very hard to ask that question, but actually it's really paramount that we do, that, we, that we're, very, we're very sort of straight talking about that. Yes. And clear about it. Yes. 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 And I, I would imagine the, the person in question would want to make that distinction. You know, yes. I absolutely wasn't trying to kill myself. I was trying to make myself feel better. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, in, in sort of the police circles and A&E and um, ambulance circles, it can be quite hard to sort of accept that. You know, yeah. I've heard some, particularly ambulance people saying, well, you know, if you're going to go that far, you, you must have known that there was a chance you'd want to die. Mm. Um, and I think that that is a it's a tricky line, isn't it? That you, yeah. you are being very reckless. You know, somewhere in your mind that there's a there's a chance. But of course, we'd like with any other addiction with self-harm, with self-injury, tolerance builds up. So, so you have to do more to, to go get the further same and further. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah. definitely something we need to, you know, hold in our minds when we're working with people who are severely self-harming. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, this next question, I think you've really answered, but there's a slight twist in it. How can we prevent self-harm and show that life is enjoyable and worthwhile? Mm. I think it's, you know, it's what we would do as human given therapists, you know, it's help people yes. uh, create a life where our emotional needs are met. So, you know, as I know, most, most um, human given therapists do in that first session, it's about helping someone build hope. So, you know, really asking them the miracle question, beginning to build up a picture of what their life will be like when they've learned new coping strategies, when they've started re-engaging in things that make them feel alive and, you know, started meeting people they want to see again. And so that we really use the tools like guided imagery to build that up. So someone can imagine an alternative to being stuck where they are now. Yes, that's it, isn't it? Getting that yeah. image, that, that uh, future picture. Yes. Yes, yes yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and I think for some people that is in tiny, tiny steps as well. You know, if you're, if you're working with someone who's got a long, long history of self-harm and is really stuck, mm. it, it, might, it might be really tiny what you're working on. Yes, and may not have any good images from the past to draw upon if their exactly. whole childhood's been difficult. Exactly. So that, that, that can be much trickier. Yeah. Um, yeah. so it's almost you know using using the reality generator to start thinking what what that might be like if they could imagine it yes yeah mm. and and another question along the same lines how can you build self-esteem and self-love which mm. of course slightly ties in with the lee pycroft interview i did about uh image and yeah. uh you know she's a international makeup artist but mm. has turned to the human givens approach uh, for that element of of how to build self-esteem how to make us feel good about ourselves 
Mm. Um, what What are your thoughts on on that? Um, to me, it comes back to the needs again. Yeah, really, Julia. You know, I guess particularly about um, building intimate relationships. You know, building relationships where you where you can feel you trust somebody. And that may well be initially with you as a therapist, you know, if they haven't got people in their life that they feel they can trust, um, having a relationship where they feel supported and validated is often the first step, I think, to, to developing self-esteem and self-love. And then obviously starting to do activities and um, occupations or whatever it is that actually give you a sense of achievement and competence, which we know leads to self-esteem. Yes, mm. yes, yes, yes. And uh, the last couple of questions here, which I think could be sort of wrapped into one. Can, can self-harm be overcome or is it a continuous journey? Mm. Um, oh, well, I'll, I'll stick with that one first and then there's a sort of final one. Okay. Um, I definitely think it can be, I know it can be overcome. Yeah. Um, you know, I've worked with, with people who, who couldn't have imagined they would have stopped self-harming and they have, um, or it might be something that on very rare occasions they would go back to. Um, mm. the, there was a big Australian study, the only, um, historical study actually of self-harm that started in the nineties and they followed, uh, a group of young people. So they started interviewing them at about age 13 and they followed them through to their late twenties, looking at all kinds of mental health indicators. And what they showed was that in the beginning, in the, in the kind of early teenage years, about 10% of girls and about 6% of boys were self-harming. And by the age of 29, only 10% of those of that 10% and that 6% ah. were still self-harming. So and that, and that was a completely random group. So it, what they weren't, they weren't receiving any particular treatment. They would, you know, it was just a, a naturalized study. Mm. And I think this is that, you know, that's really indicative. It was quite a large cohort. It was about 2000. Um, that most of the time self-harm dissipates um, yeah. in the same way that, you know, all the other things that teenagers you know, yes. that we experiment with drugs and drink and being promiscuous and gambling, you know, those things most of the time, if your needs are met and your environment's healthy, will, yeah. will slip away. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I actually worked with someone um, who self-harmed through cutting and yeah. she, which may, may be the case with others, she, she, had, she, kept, she had a little pen knife. And that was her favorite sort of, you know, she could obviously have used other knives, but that's what she used. Mm. And this was always kept in her back pocket. Yeah. And the moment where she actually gave up, even though she hadn't self-harmed for a long time, the pen, the, the pen knife was always there. Yeah. And the moment she actually realized she'd stopped was when she chucked that knife out. Yeah. So yeah. That, that was a sort of, a, a bit like we do in the rewind. It, she, yeah. she actually threw it away yeah yeah and I yeah I mean you hear that a lot with smokers don't you that Mm. you know when they're giving up they'll still carry a packet of fags with them yes or they're lighter or yes yeah 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 so I think Mm. it's quite an individualized thing Um, yes but I think the such an important thing when you're working with self-harm is is to have hope you know and, and to convey that hope to that person that their life can be really different yeah. Um, 
you know, and that this is, this is their way of coping now. Yes, absolutely. Mm. And, and just finally, how, how should we react when we see old scars from self-harm? Mm. Yeah. Is that a positive? This person's overcome self-harming behaviors? Mm. Or, oh, is this person still vulnerable? Yeah. I think I would ask them. <laughs> <laughs> yes in terms of, you know in, in in my first session I would always ask you know whatever whatever they've come with has it ever got to a point where they've thought about har- harming themselves who have actually har- harmed themselves yeah. and and ask them about that um just you know routinely I would do that mm. so that they would be able to tell you whether that was more recent or or something that they did a while ago you know because that's that's obviously a major factor of how recent um, the scars are yes but I think the, the the point there is to not be scared of asking you know yeah because other, otherwise it's the elephant in the room isn't it you yeah, know sort of... exactly and then somehow you know everything else is acceptable but not that mm. you know it's so much work can be done about just being really open and and a matter of a fact and and, and normalize not normalizing the act but normalizing the fact that we all do different things in order to cope yeah um and it, yes. yeah, the, the, the respect that you convey through that is very important, I think. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Fabulous, Emily. Well, that's the end of the questions. But is there anything you'd like to add that you feel we haven't covered? We probably covered everything. Yeah. yeah. Oh, good. That's brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. And I know you, your, your one day workshop day, Overcoming Self-Harm. Now, I'm assuming that's for all comers, for therapists and people who are having difficulties themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I've, I've certainly had people who are, you know, working to overcome self-harm themselves and also parents. And of parents, them. of course, yes. Yeah, who are in yeah. that situation who I think have, well, I hope they found it helpful. Yeah. 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 Oh, brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Emily. Well, my thanks to everyone who's listening. Uh, I'm sure you will have found the, this time very interesting. Um, and especially to all those who took time to submit questions for Emily. Thank you very much. I hope you've felt they've been answered fully. Um, and of course, thank you, Emily, for taking the time with us today. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Well, it's certainly been a very, very interesting conversation for me. And I'm sure all this information and advice has been interesting and helpful for listeners. Um, Now, if you'd like to learn more about self-harm and how to give people the best chance of stopping, Emily's one-day course is called Overcoming Self-Harm. And it's available, you can find it on our humangivenscollege.com website. Uh, It's coming to London in March and October of this year. Uh, We've only got two dates for this year, so spaces are limited. So please make sure you book your place in advance and avoid disappointment. You can book online or at, as I said, humangivenscollege.com or by phoning our office. And the number is 01323 811690. Well, I really hope you've enjoyed this Ask the Expert podcast. And thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a great day. Bye for now, past. And thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a great day. Bye for now.